You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, today is the final Sunday of our study through the book of Jonah. And it's been a great few months, hasn't it? Uh, This is the ninth Sunday that we've spent in this book. And really, in a lot of ways, Jesus has done for us what he habitually does when his people gather around his word. Uh, He has met with us. It has been a refreshing couple of months of working through this book together um, as a church family. And so today we are in chapter four. So it would be really helpful if you had the book of Jonah out and open on your lap, in particular to chapter four. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, take us on a quick tour of where we have been up to this point in the story of Jonah. So think about chapter one. God comes to Jonah, and in chapter one, verse two, he tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Now, when God comes to one of his prophets and says, go do this thing, what are you expecting to happen? You are expecting for that prophet to say, great, that's what God wants, that's what I'll do. You're expecting Jonah to obey, but instead this story takes one of its many surprising turns. Jonah runs from God. He runs, and this is your storied presentation of sin. This is what sin looks like throughout this story, but even more surprising than Jonah's run from God is God's run to Jonah. It's the storied presentation of grace, and this whole story, the book of Jonah, one of the things it is meant to do is to show us what God's grace is like. This story is meant to to excavate grace, hold it up before us so that we could all stare at the grace of God. And in verse four of chapter one, grace takes the form of a storm. It's the tender violence of God, if you remember us talking about that uh, several weeks back. Uh, And God sends that storm not to ruin Jonah, but to rescue Jonah, to save Jonah. But Jonah refuses to repent. And Jonah looks at the pagan sailors and says, just throw me in. I am ready to die. Jonah would rather die than comply with the command of God. But grace, this is one of the things we've been looking at for two months now, but grace has never lost a race. And now grace takes the form of a fish. And just like the storm, God sends that big fish to rescue, not to ruin Jonah, but to rescue Jonah. And it's there in the belly of that fish that God takes Jonah down to the roots of the mountain where the bars of Sheol closed in around him. He is about as low as you can go. God took him down to the roots of the mountain to produce desperation in the heart of Jonah. That's Jonah chapter two. And here is what's so amazing. When God's people finally hit a moment of desperation, God, like he so often does, delivers Jonah. And then after three days in the belly of the fish, God caused the fish to vomit Jonah on the beach. And then you finally get to Jonah chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It's it's grace, amazing grace, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Grace finally got Jonah going. 
And Jonah goes to Nineveh, stands in the middle of the city, and he preaches a one-sentence sermon. I didn't know that was possible. A one-sentence sermon. And the grace of God turns, the same grace that turns the worst of sinners away from their sin and toward God, turned the worst of cities, a whole city, away from their sin, away from their evil, and back to God. It's an amazing moment. Uh, The cities, all the way from the kings, all the way from the top, all the way down to the cows, they were all in on this. And when the people, the city, when they repented, God relented. Now that takes us to the end of chapter three, and that would be an amazing end to the book, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be a great spot for this story to end. Uh, Jonah finally obeys. Nineveh repents. God relents. The end. That'd be uh, just an amazing, nice, easy way to wrap up the story. But this story that is packed with surprises gives us one more. Rather than a nice, clean conclusion, we have chapter four. One more messy, messy chapter. And it turns out that chapter four is actually the climatic point of the entire story. And in a lot of ways, this story saves the worst of Jonah for the last chapter. This is where we see the depths of his sin, the depths of his rebellion, in all of its bright colors. And this closing chapter, in a lot of ways, you can maybe think of it this way. It gives us two things to consider. It gives us a contrast. There's a contrast it wants us to consider. And then it gives us questions. So I just want to frame this morning around those two things, the contrast and the questions. So let's think this through together. First, the contrast. As you read this story, all four chapters of the book of Jonah, as you read it, you are meant to see the contrast. You are meant to see the difference between God's missional heart and Jonah's tribal heart. This is one thing this story is trying to make unavoidable to us. You're supposed to read it and for it to be impossible not to notice that there is a huge difference between God's heart and Jonah's heart. The missional heart of God and the tribal heart of Jonah. So let's just take those in part, this contrast, the missional heart of God. Now let's zoom out of the book of Jonah for a moment and just consider the whole of the Bible. The Bible progressively starts in Genesis ends in Revelation, and it progressively reveals the plans and purposes of God. You don't see it all at once. It is revealing the plans and purposes of God in stages, in steps. So during the Old Testament, the attention of God is firmly fixed upon the people of Israel. They're kind of on the center of the stage in God's dealing with humanity. But by the time you get to the end of the scriptures, you're seeing more and more. You're seeing the the full picture of the purpose of God. So you get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5 and and, and chapter 7, we're seeing that God's plans and God's purposes, what God is after, is for a people made up of every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what God is after. But glimpses of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, uh, glimpses of that full picture show up in the Old Testament. They're just in seed form. 
You don't see it like you do in, in Revelation 5, but they're in seed form in the Old Testament. And the book of Jonah is one of those places where you can see the seed of Revelation 5, a people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. The missionary impulse in the heart of God drenches the book of Jonah. Two verses in, God looks at Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Two verses in, we begin to see a God whose heart is ready to rescue men and women of all nations. We begin to see that this heart of God that's concerned about foreign nations, even wicked foreign nations like Assyria, even foreign nations like that. He's so concerned about them that he would send a prophet to call out against them. Now, in chapter 1, verse 2, uh, when he says, Arise, Jonah, call out, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Go to Assyria, and I want you to say what I've given you to say to them. Uh, This is where the the distance, we're we're reading that text roughly 2,800 years later. Uh, This is where the distance can actually be a disadvantage for us. It, is, it feels impossible for me to be able to communicate uh, and convey the emotional response that a normal Hebrew person, an Israelite, would have had to that command. Uh, when they would have heard God say, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out against it, their hearts would have instantly, just like Jonas did, uh, their hearts would have instantly swelled with anger. God, did you say Nineveh? You're you're wanting me to go to to Nineveh? God, are you sure you've got the right location? And in their minds, Assyria was unsavable. The people of Nineveh were beyond the grace of God. They were known for their brutality and cruelty. Today, and we've said this several times over the last few weeks, but today we would consider uh, the people of Assyria a terrorist state. That's how we would be thinking of them and talking about them. And beyond that, they were Israel's chief enemy. They represented everything it meant to live a life apart from God, independent from God. That that was the people of Assyria. So think about your own life for a moment. We all have a category called the worst. You have a category like that. I have categories like that. We have a category in our life of like, here are the worst. And here's what we do with that category. We, over time, begin to fill that category with people. With people who are, in our estimation, the worst. Now, if you were to go to the people of Israel and you were to find that category called the worst, there would be a whole lot of Assyrians in there. These people were the worst to them. So here's what Jonah shows us. Grace, this amazing grace of God, this pursuing grace of God, grace goes after the worst. It goes after big, bad sinners, the worst, like the Ninevites like the Assyrians. Grace goes after the worst. Now think about what this story is doing. God intentionally chose to pour out his grace on those that Israel considered the worst. Now why would God do that? He's trying to show them, and by extension us, 
what his heart is like. He's looking at us through the book of Jonah and saying, this is my heart. I love to rescue the worst. Wherever the worst are, those are the people that I love to set my affection on and pour out my grace upon. I love the worst. This whole story is trying to convince us that God is ready to rescue even the most defiant rebel. Grace goes after the worst. And you know what's amazing about chapter 3? The people of Nineveh, the, the worst, they weren't asking for grace. Grace goes after them without them asking. No one in Nineveh is saying, hey, God, would you come save us? Hey, God, we're, we're, we're in trouble. Would you come and rescue it? They didn't even know they needed rescuing. They're content in their worstness. They were not looking for God, but God was looking for them. God, like he always does, makes the first move. God takes the first step. It's a storied presentation of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But whosoever, the worst, the worst of sinners. Now, I want to take just a moment to apply this. There are some of us that we are listening today and we are reading this text today. And when we think about our category, the worst, like whatever that category is, when we think about that category in our life, um, we are the, the sort of person, some of us in the room, who when we think about that category, here's what that category is made up of. Us. We're in that category. You have put yourself in that category. Your sin, what you have done, what you have been caught up in, is so dark and so deplorable that it's even shocked you. It's even surprised you how bad it is, how how dark it is. And if that's you today, this story is for you. Jonah, These four chapters are in the Bible for you to to, to help convince you that God's grace isn't just for nice, put-together sinners. It's also for the worst of sinners. This book is in the Bible to, to convince you that regardless of what you have done, doesn't matter how deep and how dark it is, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Grace goes after the worst, the the worst. We're seeing God's missional heart that that grace goes after the worst, but it doesn't just go after the worst. Uh, The book of Jonah also shows us that grace goes after the self-righteous. Not the big bad sinner, but the really nice, good, moral sinner, the self-righteous sinner like Jonah. So if Nineveh represents the worst of sinners, the rule breakers, 
the people who are just living without any sort of acknowledgement of God. Jonah represents the best of sinners, the, the rule keepers. He's conservative. He's morally upright, right? He's not known for his cruelty or his brutality. He isn't like the Ninevites who would bury their victims up to their neck and then leave them and just, we'll see what happens to them. He wasn't like that. He was the good guy. He was the guy with good theology, good morality. But ironically, this story is showing us that Jonah needs more grace than even the pagan sailors need or that the big bad people of Nineveh need. He is the one, Jonah is the one who needs the most grace out of anyone in the story. I mean, this is the ironic thing about these four chapters. The good guy, Jonah, turns out to be the antagonist in the story. The good guy turns out to be the bad guy. The good guy is the guy who keeps resisting. All the bad guys are actually responding to the grace of God, but the good guy is the one who just, his heels are dug in and he will not respond to God. He's, he's resisting and refusing God. So grace in this story doesn't just go after the worst. It also goes after the one who thinks he's the best, who looks down upon the worst, the, the big bad sinners like Assyria, the, the people of Nineveh. And so let's just stop for a moment and apply that in this room for those who are watching online. It doesn't matter how good you think you are today, how moral you think you are, how much better you think you are than person X, the worst people in your life. The story of Jonah was written to convince you that you are not beyond your need of God's grace. You're not. You're not beyond your need of the grace of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, just consider your salvation for a moment. If you want to see the missionary heart of God, all you need to do is look in the mirror. That's all you need to do. You were the rebel but God didn't come to you for revenge. He didn't come to you to ruin you. He came to rescue you in your hard-hearted rebellion. Here's the grace of God chasing you down. So friends, there is not a one of us who is beyond the reach of God's grace or the need of God's grace. This is this is the heart of God, the missional heart of God, the others-oriented heart of God. It's, it's amazing. God just comes after sinners in all of their forms, from the best to the worst. He comes after us all. And let's contrast that with the tribal heart of Jonah. Now, let me just remind you again of, of chapter 3. Revival breaks out in the worst of cities, Nineveh. Uh, the people repent. And when God, you pick it up in chapter 3, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, the whole city, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, when you turn to chapter 4 and you read verse 1, what are you expecting verse 1 of chapter 4 to say? 
I'm expecting it to say this. And the once rebellious but now repentant prophet, he returns home rejoicing at the amazing grace of God. That's what I'm expecting it to say. But that's not what it says, is it? It is a long way from that. More shocking than Jonah's run in chapter one is Jonah's rage in chapter four. Look at verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Are you serious? Is that not crazy? When, I, when you read that, you are supposed to be shocked. You're supposed to say, how in the world could that be chapter 4, verse 1? Now, just a couple of notes on the Hebrew language. First, uh, that word displeased. You might underline that. That same word in other places in the story of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, is translated evil or disaster. Now, in Jonah's mind, the, the events of chapter 3, Nineveh repenting and God relenting, all of those things felt like an absolute disaster to Jonah. They felt like God was doing something evil by relenting. This is how Jonah felt about this. This is how he saw the events of chapter 3. Now, second, the Hebrew of verse 1 is arranged to emphasize, one, the great evil that Jonah saw and what God was doing. It was an absolute disaster. And of Jonah's exceedingly great anger. Exceedingly great. The language is being stretched to show you that this was not a, uh, it's not Jonah saying, you know what, I'm just kind of having a bad day. That's not what Jonah's saying. Exceedingly great anger. This is fly off the handle anger. This is, uh, uh, maybe you could think of it as fury. This is Jonah seeing red. He is hating everything about what he is seeing uh, in chapter 3. Now, again, you're just supposed to read that and think, this is crazy. This guy has lost his mind. I mean, think for a second about Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He is a preacher. And most prophets or preachers are waiting their entire life to go into a city and preach a one-word sermon. And from the king's to the cows, the whole city turns from their sin and they look up at God. I mean, this is, this is kind of the thing you're waiting your whole life for, right? I mean, think about Jonah's preaching here. Jonah's preaching is more fruitful than the entire, in this one moment, in Nineveh, the one word sermon, is more fruitful than all of Jesus' preaching over the three years of his ministry. This is an amazing moment in the life of Jonah. An entire city is turned upside down by God's transforming grace. But there is no joy in Jonah, only rage. Is that not amazing? It is unbelievable. Jonah's heart was not like God's heart. This is why there is rage and not joy in this moment. God has this others-oriented heart, this missional heart, this, this heart that aches for perishing people. But Jonah has this tribal heart, and by tribal, I mean that it's inward. Jonah cares about people, but it's a very small, select group of people. Jonah's primarily concerned with, with me and mine. 
His top priority is, is Jonah's place and his people. As long as Jonah's place, the, the nation of Israel and its perimeter, as long as that was secure and Jonah's people, the, the nation of Israel, the people that made it up, as long as those two things were secure, uh, Jonah's place and his people, then Jonah was great. God could do whatever he wanted. It was awesome. But, but this was his boundary to, to grace, to, to his love, his place and his people. And chapter four is written to show us the contrast between God's missional heart over here and Jonah's tribal heart over there. And then look at chapter four, verse two. Jonah didn't run from God because Nineveh was too far of a walk. Jonah didn't run from God because Jonah was scared for his life. I mean, he was gonna be a, a prophet showing up in an enemy city. That is not why Jonah ran. Jonah ran because he didn't like who God was. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, this is a, this, all of these phrases describing God here, gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, uh, they are all very familiar to the Old Testament. This is the way God talks about himself, the way God revealed himself. In Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself to Moses with these words. This is the way that God summarizes his heart who he is as God. Yeah, maybe you can think of it this way. This is the summary statement for God in the Old Testament. That this is who God is. And in this moment, Jonah hated it. When Jonah says to God, I knew you were a God like this, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't speak those words with adoration to God but an accusation to God. God, how could you be that to the worst? God, what is wrong with you? God, you need to get your life together and your heart together and the way you're seeing the world together because God, this is crazy. That's what Jonah is saying to God. And in a lot of ways, this is one of those tension-filled moments in the story where Jonah finally puts his cards on the table. For the first time in the story, we get to see below the surface of Jonah's running to the source of Jonah's running. Jonah ran because his tribal heart just could not understand God's missional heart. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, Jonah hates the promiscuity of God's love. And that's why Jonah ran. He just could not understand this others-oriented, missional heart of God. He could not understand the heart of God that would throw itself open to the people of Nineveh, to Assyrians, to the worst. He just could not understand a God like that. Here's maybe a way to think about Jonah's problem. Jonah had experienced the grace of God, but he refused to extend it. 
Now think about Jonah's life for a moment. Where would Jonah be without the grace of God? He would be buried at the bottom of the sea, wouldn't he? But rather than allowing that grace that's rescued him to break his heart and then to flow into the lives of others, he's blocked the grace of God. He just refuses to extend the grace that he's experienced. Jonah, in chapter 4, will not budge until Nineveh is buried under the wrath of God. That's the contrast, the missional heart of God and the tribal heart of Jonah. Jonah, this story is showing us just how far our hearts can be from God. Listen, even when we're doing religious-y sort of things, even when we're preaching a sermon, how far our heart can be from God. Now, the questions. This whole book is building to the three questions that God poses to Jonah uh, in these concluding verses of chapter four. So just follow along with me in Jonah chapter four. So verses one and two. Uh, fuming and furious, Jonah looks at God and to paraphrase it says, um, God, what you are doing is dead wrong and you need to stop. No, God, this cannot continue like this. That's verses one and two. Then you get to verse three. And Jonah essentially looks at God and says, I am so disgusted by what you're doing, I'm ready to die. I am ready to die. So God, just, just get it over with and kill me. If you were God, how would you respond? We've kind of said this over and over throughout this story, but this is another one of those places in the story of Jonah where if I were God, the next verse would have read, and God killed Jonah. <laughs> it's over. The end. But that's not how God responds to Jonah. Is it not amazing how patient God is with Jonah? You have never bumped into a being in this universe who has been more patient to you than God has been to you. No one. The patience of God is just unbelievable. He is so patient with Jonah. Verse 4. Watch how God responds to Jonah. And the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Just the gentleness and patience of God. Do you, do you do well to be angry? Grace, pursuing grace, is now coming in the form of questions. Uh, Jonah, is, is your anger adding color to your life? Is this anger good, Jonah? Uh, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah responds to God's gracious question by going to the east of the city and setting up a tent, just waiting to see what would happen to the city, hoping that maybe God would kind of come to his senses and let him have it. That, that maybe God would change his mind and he would no longer relent, but he would ruin the city of Nineveh. But grace just won't let Jonah go. Look at verse 6. 
And God appoints a plant. And Jonah loved the plant. It provided some shade for Jonah. It was an amazing plant. Jonah loved the plant. But then in verse 7, God appoints a worm to eat the plant. I mean, this is like the point of the story where on some level we should be laughing and we should be crying all at the same time. Because it's comical and it's sad, all of that. Here comes the plant that God appoints, and then God appoints a worm to eat the plant. Then in verse 8, God appoints a scorching wind to blister the head of Jonah. And in despair now, Jonah cries out again, verse 8, Okay, God, I'm ready to die. I, I really mean it. Just, just take me now. This is God getting Jonah to the end of Jonah. Then look at verse 9. The God of grace, the good counselor, comes again with gentleness. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah does what no man should do. He answers a rhetorical question. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now here comes the climatic sort of point of the story. The last two verses. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, Jonah nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now, you might underline the word pity there in verse 10. That word pity is an emotional term. Uh, it's God looking at Jonah and saying, Jonah, you are emotionally invested into the plant. Jonah, you are giving parts of your heart to this plant. Jonah, you love this plant. And Jonah, did you make this plant grow? Jonah, did you labor for this plant? Jonah, you knew this plant for all of one night, but, but Jonah, you have pity for it. Compassion is swelling up in your heart for this plant, Jonah. And here comes the final question, verse 11. And God says to Jonah, and should not I pity Nineveh? It's the same word. It's an emotional word, right? It's, it's God saying, should I not give parts of my heart? Should I not love this city? Should I not weep over this city? Should I not ache over this city? Should I not have pity and compassion swell within me for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That's just a way of saying they're spiritually blind. They don't know that they're about to be ruined and also much cattle. Now think about what verse 11 is doing. It's an argument. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God is saying, uh, Jonah, there are plants and there are people. And if we're going to assign value and rank value, plants versus people, what is more precious? What is more valuable? The answer is, as great as a plant is, people are more valuable. Amen? People have, have more value. But Jonah's entire way of seeing the world is off. So Jonah in this text is looking at God and saying, God, I don't understand your love. I cannot make sense of this. He's looking at God and saying, God, what's wrong with you? You cannot rescue the people of Nineveh. They are the worst. No, God, you cannot do this. 
And God is looking at Jonah and saying, Jonah, I don't understand you. Jonah, you love plants more than you do people. You love plants, Jonah, more than you do people. Jonah, you're emotionally invested. You have pity for a plant, but you're missing what's of supreme value. 120,000 perishing people. Now, here is the brilliance of the book of Jonah. It just ends right there. It's strange, isn't it? It just ends with, with a question. There, there's no response from Jonah. This is the big climatic point of the whole book. Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, this great city? And then it ends. It's as if the storyteller wants to grab Jonah, push him out of the way, and then the storyteller wants to grab you and pull you right into that question's path. The aim of that question is not toward Jonah. The aim of that question is toward you. Do you value plants or people? Plants or perishing people? That's the question this book leaves with us. Is your heart more like God's weeping over perishing people or more like Jonah's weeping over perishing plants? Now, don't be confused with the word plant. It's just a metaphor. A, a plant is or might be your career, your paycheck. A plant might be your comfort your addiction to convenience, your possessions, your retirement account. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's just the approval of people. What do, what do other people think of me? Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's a hobby in your life. But that plant is a metaphorical stand-in for anything lesser than perishing people that you love more than perishing people. And Jonah, th this whole story is written to confront us with the question, is it plants or people? Are those plants more valuable than the two billion people alive on this planet today who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it plants or people for you? Are those plants more valuable than the perishing people in your neighborhood? Or maybe it's in your classroom. Maybe it's in your workplace. Plants or perishing people? Stonegate, are we, are we more like Jonah, ready to weep over the loss of our little trivial plants? Or are we more like the heart of God, 
ready and able and willing to weep over perishing people. Think about the last year of your life for a moment. What has caused you the greatest anguish? What's kept you up at night? When you just replay the tape, it's just the thing that you're repeating and replaying and reminding yourself of. What, what, what have you wept over in the last year? Plants or perishing people? This story is written to help us weep over perishing people. I want to finish by introducing you to a lady named Karen Watson. She was a missionary to Iraq and was killed by a group of unknown attackers on March 15, 2004. Her story is chronicled in the book Lives Taken, or Lives Given, Not Taken. And in it, the authors talk about this envelope that she gave to her church. Uh, before she left to go to Iraq. And uh, she gave it to the pastors, and uh, on that envelope, it said, do not open unless I die. Open only in case of death. And when she died, they opened the letter, and here's what it said, in part. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, You should only be opening this in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to him, to Jesus. To obey was my objective, to suffer was my expectation. It should be expected. His glory, is my reward. His glory is my reward. The missionary heart cares more than some think is wise, risk more than some think is safe, dreams more than some think is practical, and expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. Because there is no joy outside of knowing and serving Jesus. I love you too and my church family. In his care, Karen. Jonah is meant to ready us to pin our letters to Jesus and to prepare our lives, to be willing to give our lives to see Nineveh's saved. That's what it's meant to do. And so Stonegate, can we let it, let it do its work in us? May we be God's people with God's heart for the perishing, amen? Would you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to talk to you, to press into your heart what would be most helpful today.
mean, just ask the Lord to give you clarity. Are you more concerned with plants in your life than perishing people? Is your heart, just like Jonah, is a million miles from the heart of God? Even though you're here this morning, you're doing a lot of religious things, but it's a million miles from the heart of God. Plants are perishing people. Oh, that God would break up our hearts. Oh, that God would give us his ache. That God would do the miracle of gifting us tears, anguish. For some in the room, you have not been looking for God, but God has been looking for you. And God has you here today. And what God is asking of you today is to take that huge, decisive step toward him. That that first step of faith where you push your life across the line with Jesus, where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus where you offer your life to God and say, God, I am trusting Jesus, save me. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace today and you're not beyond the need of God's grace today. And this is what God is asking of you, to call out to him. You can just do that right now in the best way you know how. God stands so ready, so willing to save. So God, would you do this work in us today? God, may you plant this story, the book of Jonah, deep in our hearts. God, may you allow us today to take a good hard look at our heart Plants or perishing people? God, would you bring repentance to us? God, would you bring new urgency to us? God, would you bring new desperation to us? God, would you bring new desires for us? God, would you use us in this world for the sake of perishing people? It's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.